and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl, And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Well, Rick, uh, we've got a, we got an action-packed show. We've just taken a quick break from the uh, Senate impeachment trial. The questions are underway. Uh, the Chief Justice reading the questions from the Senator is really quite fascinating. And he's cracking the whip. Five minutes is and, all that's allowed for an answer. And you can't filibuster on your questions because you have to write them by hand. And uh, that little, they only give you a few lines to write. They get a little card, a little index card. They have to hand it in to the teacher and uh, and get it and, and read it aloud, and then get the get their answers. I want to talk about two songs from the uh, the soundtrack to the musical Hamilton. Okay. Yeah, please. The first one is actually called Cabinet Number One, but for our purposes, we'll call it "You Don't Have the Votes." Uh, this is the issue of whether or not they're going to call witnesses. Rick, uh, I, I got to tell you, we had this going into the weekend. We had a situation where there were four senators who were believed to be in play for witnesses, which just happens to be the number of senators that you need to get witnesses to get to 51 Right, to add to the Democrats, right. So, uh, you know the four senators. Go ahead. Collins, Murkowski, Romney, Alexander. Yes. Okay, so then Sunday you have this, whoa, unbelievable, you know, uh, story breaks in the New York Times about John Bolton's book. Uh, which has been submitted to the White House for security review and says point blank that the president told him he didn't want the aid to go uh, to Ukraine until they launched these investigations into Biden and uh, into the 2016 uh, campaign and that crazy conspiracy theory. So uh, – that must have just completely scrambled the, the situation regarding witnesses, right? That's right. It's... No, wrong. Oh, so, no, wait. What? So here we are. Up. Here we are. The situation with witnesses is precisely four Republican senators in play, and they are? I, I'm going to go with uh, Collins, uh, Murkowski, Romney, and Alexander. Exactly oh, wow. the same place we were before the Bolton. It, it, it changed absolutely nothing. And, you know, M- McConnell made some, uh, you know, noises. He, he talked to the uh, Republicans yesterday, and it was reported, including by our very own Mary Bruce, that he said, we don't have the votes yet to block witnesses. Well, I mean, that's classic McConnell saying that two days before uh, we're actually going to vote the votes on, on, on Friday. Uh, and McConnell doesn't say that publicly unless no. that's part of the play. Yeah, it's not like yeah, he accidentally yeah, called yeah. the Wall Street Journal or <laughs> his people put out the word. He put out the word. That's the state of play so that they could get things back in line. The bottom line is I think we're still with you don't have the votes, uh, Adam Schiff. I – you know, my sense, I mean, we'll see. This is still a long time till Friday in this vote. We're in this question and answer period. Who knows what the president himself is going to do uh, that could scramble the situation. But the bottom line is uh, I don't see any fundamental shift uh, from before the Bolton revelations, which was, in my view anyway, based on my conversations with uh, White House folks dealing with uh, the Senate on this and with those on Capitol Hill. That this looks like they will probably hold the line, and they'll hold the line because they are talking to those uh, those those senators, and they are making the case that we could call in witnesses. And first of all, that's going to open the door to the White House calling witnesses potentially. Um, and if we call in witnesses, there's going to be a legal battle over executive privilege and over you know, I mean, a legal battle that could go on for weeks. The trial is going to be prolonged. And guess what? Even if Bolton comes and testifies to exactly what we just heard uh, in this break from, by the New York Times about what's in his book, the votes on removal, they're not going to change. So do you really want to do that? So, look, I, I think history may look back at the Senate and find it quite remarkable that they did not call witnesses if it goes that way. Um, but I 
I don't think that I don't think we're headed towards witnesses. Well, we haven't seen any change in the votes. And in fact, the only movement we've we've seen is uh, people like Senator Cory Gardner come out and say, I actually don't think we need to hear from witnesses. Uh, To me, it's it's a play that's become a classic Trump move. Uh, The initial bomb drops of this Bolton revelation. By the way, what's the other Hamilton quote you were referencing? Yeah, uh, The Room Where It Happened, the which, where is it happened. The, which is the title of Bolton's book. Isn't that great? It is pretty great. Best song, best song in Hamilton, it's by pretty the way. Great. It's pretty great. So, so this drops on, on Sunday, and everyone finds out that this book is, is floating around, and everyone has their meltdown, and everyone goes nuts that, yes, this is, oh, this is the big thing. How can we thing. be blindsided by this? And it's Why a big we... revelation, to be clear. To ha- to, for Bolton, he was said all along that he has relevant information to say directly, yes, that was exactly the concern that was conveyed to me directly by the president. That's a fact witness. That's right there. But the classic Trump move in this is is twofold. One is the rhetorical firepower of the White House and its assorted allies has come down on John Bolton. He has been portrayed uh, as a traitor, as a turncoat, uh, as a disloyal person uh, to the Trump world. They have turned on him with fury. And this is a guy – I mean, John, you've known John Bolton for a long I've time. I've known John Bolton for a long time. I mean, does, does this fit the classic definition of – of a turncoat, never no, trumper. No, no, you know. Look, John Bolton's made a lot of enemies along the way because he is a very rigid. It, you know, he's got his strong views. He's an ideologue. Uh, he's very smart. He has never been accused uh, accused of being um, somebody who has been, uh, you know, in it to get attention. He's never been accused of being somebody uh, who waffles back and forth and is hypocritical. He's never been confused, been accused of being a liar, mm-hmm. uh, being, you know, of of lying for expediency. He is a truth teller. Now, a lot of people don't like his version of the truth that he tells, uh, but he is a, uh, you know, one one of the most prominent conservative foreign policy uh, thinkers of, of the last uh, a couple of decades. And he is not somebody that's out there that plays games on this stuff. He, he makes a lot of enemies because he is so rigid ideological and he sticks to his views and he does not like compromise. But I want to go through um, some of these attacks on John Bolton because I find them quite fascinating. And let's Let's begin with the president himself. Um, you know, he's been attacked by, by the RNC. He's been attacked by the president's uh, allies. But the president himself, who has kind of done this escalating uh, attacks on Bolton at first, kind of not really attacking him because maybe he was hoping he was still going to kind of be on board. But now when it's become clear that Bolton's got some things to say, uh, the, the president's latest tweets today uh, on Bolton – I'm going, to, I'm going to read a good chunk of this. It, I think it warrants uh, sure. looking at, look at it in detail. Uh, for a guy who couldn't get approved for the ambassador to the UN years ago, couldn't get approved for anything since, begged me for a nine, non-Senate approved job, which I gave him despite many saying, don't do it, sir, takes the job, mistakenly says Libyan model on TV, and many more mistakes of judgment, gets fired, frankly, because if I listened to him, we would be in World War VI, and now goes out immediately and writes a nasty and untrue book, all classified national security, who could do this? And I'd like to just do a little bit of a textual analysis of this tweet. (laughs) Um, Let's start at the very end. First of all, I think it's interesting. He says, it's all untrue. 
All untrue. And yet is also classified yes. national security. Yeah, can, so can it be both? Is it fiction? I'm not sure. Or is if it's it, fiction, okay. he's probably not revealing uh, classified information. But put that aside for a moment. He is saying that he couldn't get approved for ambassador to the UN years ago. That's actually true. That's we true. covered that yeah. story. Uh, he was a recess appointment by President Bush because it was clear he wasn't going to get uh, confirmed by the Senate. Couldn't get confirmed for anything else since, maybe, perhaps. Begged him. For a non, I don't know if he begged him. Walton doesn't seem like a beggar, but who knows? Uh, Put that aside. But this raises a question for me, just as somebody who's been covering the White House and I've covered, I've covered several different presidents. Um, The West Wing. You've got a hierarchy of of jobs. Arguably, the most important job of somebody who's got an office in the West Wing is probably I don't know, probably the president, Oval Office. Um, Probably the next most important job is Chief of Staff, and then I think. You're at National Security Advisor, and and you can make an argument that maybe that's an even more important job than Chief of Staff. Um, why, if you're President Trump and you've got a guy who couldn't get confirmed for anything, and you know begged you for a job, why do you name him your National Security Advisor? And then if he's a guy that makes all these mistakes and was going to get you into World War Six, why does he remain your National Security Advisor for 17 months? Fascinating questions, all of them, John. By the way, a very long tenure for a senior job in this White House. That's right. Put him on the put him on the map up there with the, with the longest with that. Look, I I think the way that the president is able to turn everyone on someone should no longer be surprising. It still can be pretty shocking then when you see people like John Bolton who are tarnished like this and whatever his motivations are. Uh, he is now on the record in this way. Uh, it does appear that. Uh, things are moving against the idea of him testifying. He'll have his book. But by the time it comes out, the Trump army will have moved on. And I think it's that combination of uh, attacking the messenger, turning on someone immediately, and just tactically taking a step back to let the initial fervor cool. That was the McConnell of it. You kind of you, – you, you, you have the dose of Trumpism with the McConnellism of let's calm down, let's wait for a second and not yes. follow the news cycle. And by the time you're at Friday – now we're in the middle of the week – by the time you're at Friday, the calculation is you're exactly where you were on Monday. Okay, but, but, but I mean, I just want to get on this, appointing somebody who you, who you think this of. Now, the president, after he fired Tillerson, called him dumb as a rock. Again, raising the question, why do you make secretary of state, arguably your most important cabinet appointment, given to somebody who is dumb as a rock? Steve uh, Bannon, after he left, he called him sloppy Steve and a lot worse. Said he lost uh, his mind. Uh, and this was the guy that was your, quote, chief strategist. Um, it just – I think – I remember one of the campaign promises that the president made uh, many times over the course of the 2016 campaign to appoint the best people. I just find it fascinating the number of people who he has put in the most sensitive and important positions who have effectively turned on him and been completely savagely attacked uh, by the president. And by the way, that leads me to John Kelly, the former White House chief of staff who uh, was talking to a group down in Florida and said, I believe John Bolton, and also suggested he'd like to see you know witnesses testify. Uh, I believe John Bolton. Now, that's an extraordinary statement. Again, just to bring you a little bit inside to um, the operations there, I know for a fact John Kelly was not a big fan of John Bolton's. In fact, many people I – mean, Trump's actually right about this. I mean, the guy rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, again, mostly because he is – Rigid and fights for it, knows what he believes and fights for it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so to see John Kelly, uh, the former uh, chief of staff, say that is also quite interesting. But just to take a step back, 
these attacks on Bolton, I, I, I don't know if you caught this, but Lindsey Graham put out a statement today. And Lindsey Graham today, as at least not so far, been running to the cameras, which is a bit unusual. Uh, uh, but he did put out a written statement. So this is like something that is put out strategically, right. making the case against witnesses, saying if there are going to be witnesses, we damn well better hear from the Bidens. That's all on, that's all on message regarding the White House. But then he adds this at the end of his statement. However, I am concerned when John Bolton's credibility is attacked, it makes it more likely some will feel the need to call him as a witness. He is concerned about John Bolton's credibility being attacked. This is Lindsey Graham, who is carrying more water for the president than just about anybody in the Senate at this particular point, doesn't like to hear these attacks on John Bolton. And I suspect although the Senate is packed with Trump loyalists at this point, that there are several of them who are also a bit uneasy with the, you know, maybe don't want to hear Bolton, um, you know, testify, but don't like these attacks. And they, and I think for them, I think that's actually Lindsey Graham telling the president, look, I can work inside the confines of the Senate if you just shut up about this, if you just cool off and stop attacking someone that is a conservative stalwart. Uh, all this idea of opening the door to witnesses and witness trades and everything else. Look, the, the Republicans control the Senate, last I checked, John. Is that true still? I think. Uh, is, right? Yes, I believe they have uh, roughly, uh, what is it, like 53? 53 or something. Yeah, yeah. If they wanted to call Hunter Biden, they could do it right now. They could just they, – they, if, they, if they had all the votes together Except, to do it. Yeah, they, they don't have the votes. They, oh, wow. Good yeah, back yeah, to Hamilton. Yeah, they don't yeah, have the yeah. votes for that either. So this is a place of defense. It's a, a rare place of defense for Senate Republicans right now. But it is fueled by the perception that there will be no significant p- price to pay. They're, the combination of not having enough senators who are for re-election and enough uh, senators up for re-election who are worried about that side of their party or that side of the electorate to, to punish them in some way against the evidence that came out this week, against the – uh, anywhere from two-thirds to three-fourths of the public in, in public opinion polls, national polls, saying there should be witnesses, there should be a full airing, uh, that, that you still have uh, the, the likelihood at this stage that this goes away without additional witnesses is a pretty astounding fact. And that's Lindsey Graham saying, I can do this if you just let me. Okay, I have two other very quick points, uh, Rick, that I want to make on Bolton. I know that we have to take a break, and and we, and we want to touch on... <laughs> a little 2020? Yeah, a little 20. We have the Iowa caucuses in just a few days here. So... Uh, Elliot Engel, who you know is the Democratic chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, put out a very interesting statement about Bolton today uh, saying that when Bolton left his job – and remember, Bolton says he was not fired, but he quit. They, there was a very public disagreement over whether or not he was fired or quit. But regardless, uh, after he left the White House, uh, Engel said that he uh, called Bolton just to you know, thank him for his service basically. Now, they don't agree on much. They, they agree on – on some policy issues, but 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 Engel's obviously a, a liberal uh, a Democrat. But Engel says that uh, he got on the phone, spoke with Bolton on September 23rd. This is uh, shortly after he leaves uh, office, after Bolton leaves office, and that he says that Bolton, on his own, brought up an issue. And I've got I've got the uh, the statement here. Um. Uh, He and I spoke by telephone on September 23rd. This is Elliot Engel's statement. On that call, Ambassador Bolton suggested to me, unprompted, that the committee look into the recall of Ambassador Marie Ivanovich. He strongly implied that something improper had occurred around her removal as our top diplomat in Kiev. Kiev. So that's a very interesting thing because – not because I mean, there's been a lot of people that have raised questions about Ivanovich's removal, 
what is more interesting to me about that is that Bolton is unprompted raising this and suggested a top Democrat investigated. That gives me some insight into John Bolton's state of mind vis-a-vis Donald Trump and I think would be a very troubling indication for Trump about what else might be in that book because there's going to be a lot else in that book beyond what is in there about the Ukraine situation. And frankly, this, this shocks me about John Bolton. As I think what you and I have discussed even on this podcast, I never saw John Bolton as the guy – that would uh, that would be the hero of a democratic uh, impeachment. Yes, I thought I thought the possibility of his testimony was overblown from the start. It appears that I was wrong. Yes. Although we haven't heard from him or know what he'd say, but yes. Which brings me to my last point on Bolton. I promise, uh, Bolton has submitted his book. He did it in late December for a security review. As we've discussed, that is something that anybody who has had the clearance must do before they can publish a book to ensure that there is nothing classified that has been perhaps inadvertently included Mm -hmm. in in, in the manuscript. So he submitted this back in late December and uh, complained uh, not long ago that he hadn't, you know, I mean, complained his lawyers that, you know, reminded him that they're supposed to get back to him within a month. So they did get uh, an answer back from the National Security Council from a woman named Ellen Knight. Her title is uh, listed as Senior Director for Records, Access, and Information Security Management. I didn't even know they had such a person. New job. Yeah. But, 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 uh, but this is uh, – she's within that group of people, career people, who are responsible for doing these reviews of, of, of manuscripts to ensure that there's no classified information. Well, this is quite a letter. It is a two-paragraph letter to Bolton's attorney, Charles Cooper. And this is what it has to say about this classified review. Based on our preliminary review, the manuscript appears to contain significant amounts of classified information. Okay? It all, by the way, Bolton has said that there, he worked very hard to include no to classified that, yeah. information. He theoretically knows a little bit about what's classified. It also appears that some of this classified information is at the top secret level, which is defined by Executive Order 13526, which I know you're familiar with, Rick, as information that, quote, reasonably could be expected to cause exceptionally grave harm to the national security of the United States if disclosed without authorization. So they are accusing Bolton of not just including some sensitive or classified information, but top secret classified information. By the way, the kind of thing that if you intentionally disclose, you can go to jail for 10 years mm-hmm. and not publish in a book, but tell anybody about uh, who doesn't have the clearance. So the letter goes on to say uh, the manuscript may not be published or otherwise disclosed without the deletion of this classified information. So we may have a big panel ahead over Bolton's book. Maybe Bolton's book ceases to exist. Uh, I don't know how this is going to play out. I've asked Bolton himself. He hasn't answered me. Um, I've, I've texted him a question. Can you appeal this? Uh, uh, you know, how, how is this all going to work out? But this is, this is an extraordinary letter which seems to be, can the very least, long delay the publication of Bolton's book, uh, end up being a book that's got lots of things left out, and maybe even, maybe, maybe they could even threaten Bolton and say, you did something that is against the law. That kind of reads like a threat to me. I mean, I get a letter like that, I'm a little freaked out, right? Bolton knows how to read this exactly. He knows that it is essentially a threat for the White House. Don't go do this. But John, let me ask you before, before we go to break and talk 2020, why can't John Bolton just 
Give a speech. Give an interview. Talk about it. Well, I, I've read the regulations. Uh, I've, I've, I've looked into the law. Uh, I've talked to the experts, and I can confirm, Rick, that Bolton would be completely within his rights to sit down here with us on the Powerhouse Politics oh, good. Oh, wow. podcast uh, and discuss this fully. Uh, uh, we would be very careful to ensure that he wouldn't disclose any classified information over the course of our conversations. Uh, but um, uh, and I'm sure I, I hope Ambassador Bolton is listening. I've I, I, Mr. Ambassador, man, if you're listening, <laughs> I've I've known him, uh, you know, for the better part of two decades. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, you are fully welcome uh, to appear here in the Powerhouse Politics podcast. We do not intend to issue a subpoena. I don't think we have that power. I've, t- I've asked Trevor, well, Trevor about yeah. this. Um, but we absolutely uh, would, would, would love to have Ambassador Bolton on this podcast. And my reading of the law, my study of the law, my conversations with experts tells me that, that Ambassador Bolton would be, would be allowed to appear on this podcast. Yeah, that, that's the final word. Uh, so, so ordered. Uh, it if, is if so can, ordered. Yes. Should we take a quick break? Let's do it. And then we'll come back. And I've got, we have a surprise guest on the line, I think. Uh, uh, but we, we'll get to that in a minute. But we're going to talk Iowa when we come back. All right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. And Rick, we are, I mean, obviously a lot going on here. Beachman trial. We've got a State of the Union address coming up on Tuesday. We've got uh, a big vote on witnesses coming up. Maybe the end of the impeachment trial, maybe not. Um, but come on, the Iowa caucuses are just a few days away Monday. I am flying to Iowa tonight. Be there for the duration. Be back in time for State of the Union. And then the ABC debate in New Hampshire next Friday. It's all happening really fast. And man, it is a... It is a wild ride now, right now for the Democrats, where really anyone, four or five candidates could win Iowa. Bernie's the, the candidate with momentum. Uh, Bernie, I mean, from all I've, uh, I can tell, it seems like he's got an unbelievable organization out in Iowa. Energy. So you've had, you've had four Democratic presidential candidates basically stuck in Washington uh, because of the impeachment trial. Bernie Sanders is one of those four, but he seems to be the one who it matters the least uh, because he's, his people are out there uh, still holding events without without Bernie, uh, organizing without Bernie being on the ground. And he seems to be moving, whereas, I don't I mean, w- w- what's your sense with, with uh, Elizabeth Warren, um, with, with Amy Klobuchar? It seems like uh, it seems like not being there is actually hurting them. Am I, am I wrong about that? Well, I think I think it's hurt the opportunity might have had to try to break through. And I think for those two, plus Pete Buttigieg, um, the expectations are pretty high going into this. And I think in terms of the, the polling, look, there's a raft of polling out there in Iowa that shows either Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders in the lead. And it all comes down to what assumptions you're going to make about uh, about who shows up. I don't know if you know this, John, but it may all come down to turnout. It's kind of wild to, to <laughs> you, say So you're that. telling me uh, if, if more of Bernie Sanders supporters turn out, he's going to win? Well, actually, that displays a startling ignorance of the Iowa process, John. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it, it may not be that because you've got another wrinkle in this where the people choice. in Iowa, oh, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. that's right. This, explain can, that, explain so that. So right. people are going to show up and uh, they're going to record the initial vote, which is a new thing in Iowa. People will show up at the caucuses and that gets written down. How many people you you get on that first allocation. Uh, And then people get a chance to move around. If your candidate does not have 15% or more, you have the opportunity to join someone who does or try to convince someone who uh, also is a free agent to join you or join them or walk away. And there's a very real possibility that, say, Bernie Sanders overwhelms on that first vote. But after people resort themselves and allocate to people that are actually viable candidates, 
Joe Biden could come out on top in the second. Well, because cause, cause how many people really have Bernie Sanders as their second choice? That's I mean, if question. you're a Sanders person, you are a Sanders person. And you could imagine him uh, kind of overperforming on that first vote because he's got all of these uh, invigorated young people who are showing up maybe at a caucus for the first time. Uh, and it's possible that some of that support is essentially wasted when you get down to actually figuring out how many delegates you get. You can get a, oh, wait, there's wait, so much wait, 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 thing is too up, much up. to support. I'm sorry. Just wait a minute. So are we going to have two winners of the Iowa caucuses? Actually, you could have three, even theoretically four, because right. that second number then becomes a third number of a state delegate equivalent. You know, you're very familiar with this, John, yes. as our, oh, as yes. our yeah, listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that gets distilled down into the national convention number. So I'm not saying how many delegates you win of the 41 national convention delegates. So I'm not saying any of those things are likely. But Who's we're Rick Klein going to call the winner on Monday night? What actually counts is that is the state delegate equivalence. Believe it or not, that's like that's the equivalent of runs in baseball, or like the electoral college. The rest is popular vote stuff. How you actually score and get on the scoreboard in terms of getting delegates—that is the state delegate equivalent number. That's okay. the number that's going to be the check mark on your screen. Okay, so so Rick, I, I an article caught both of our attention here. Right, we, th- th- this is in the Bulwark, an article uh, by our old friend Tim Miller. Uh, uh, somebody who obviously a veteran of of, of the uh, of the Jeb Bush campaign and uh, former uh, spokesperson for the Republican National Committee and uh, let's be honest a little bit of a critic of uh, of, of President Trump, um, but he he wrote this article called the haunting. Did you check this out? I did, I did, and you know even for Tim who's a smart guy, this was pretty smart stuff. So I want to just can I read a couple paragraphs from this? Go for it. Okay, so um, he writes. A couple of political ghost stories for you. An elderly firebrand with a cult of celebrity launches a campaign driven by utter disdain for the very party for which he wants to be the standard bearer. In fact, he isn't even a member of that party at all. He lacks all the traditional markers of candidate success, endorsements, support among the party's big donors, popularity with the mainstream uh, press, but he monopolizes the freak show. His supporters come from pockets of the country and the internet that have been rejected or mocked by many of these status makers. They are angry at those who have shunned them, at the elites, the big corporations, the politicians. Often it seems as though they are angry about their own lives. They have a devil-may-care attitude about civility and the political discourse and norms, a macabre humor about the whole political charade and a strain of misogyny in their ranks. Their movement creates a new types of political celebrities who would be totally unrecognizable to your average news consumer, but who have hundreds of thousands of rabid online followers. So anyway, he, he, who's he talking about? Let's ask him. Can we is ask he, him? Wait, wait, is, is, is Tim here? D- Tim Miller right now? Let's uh, get him on. On the phone. On the phone. Wow, that was... Surprise. Is this the Ooh. ghost of Tim Miller or is this... Is this, is this... Ooh, John Carl. Wow. So... So it goes to Sean Spicer. Your 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 piece goes on here. <laughs> My old boss. Yeah. So actually, we, we we before we get into this, let's let's be sure everybody knows exactly who you are. I think the first line on your bio is uh, former deputy to Sean Spicer, right? Uh, oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, it's it's something that I bring up in every uh, new job interview. Uh, I bring up. Yeah, taught, well. taught you everything I you know. Loyal, I was a, I was a loyal deputy for a year and a half. Oh my it's, God! It's okay, crazy, John. People do find that so interesting, though. I have to say, Sean, I, my old uh, uh, friend, and now um, uh, you know, some who I've gone parted parted ways with on the uh, state of the party, uh, is like a, a real life celebrity. Even my friends who don't know politics say, "Oh my God, you worked for that guy, Dancing with the Stars." Sean when was the last time you talked to him? Um, 
Let's see. Sean called me um, uh, when he was still White House press secretary to uh, let me know that he th- that I thought that um, that he thought that I might be happy about a uh, kind of pro LGBT uh, announcement they were making. Um, I, I told him that it, I was not that, uh, that happy with it, and we uh, went back and forth about that. Um, he teasingly called me a hater. Uh, I, I think I teasingly made fun of his tie. And um, I don't, I, you know, we might have uh, maybe emailed or texted once or twice since then, but it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, we what we want to talk about is this this piece you have written, and you, you know, I I just read through your first several paragraphs. It sounds a heck of a lot like you're talking about Donald Trump, but you obviously aren't. Uh, no, uh, I'm talking about the person who is just uh, like Donald Trump peaking to the top of the polls right now in the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders. And, you know, one thing um, uh, we joked about uh, Spicer, but you guys didn't get into in my bio, is after Jeb lost and in, in, in after he dropped out in South Carolina, uh, three days later I got a call from a, a super PAC, uh, a group of donors who are organizing a super PAC to try to stop Donald Trump. Um, and asked if I'd be a part of that. Um, it was called Our Principles Pack, ironically, uh, though many of those people are now for Donald Trump. But um, uh, I, I was communications advisor to that pack, and, and so the, the Bernie, the, on two levels, um, I'm feeling haunted by this by this Bernie campaign. One is uh, what you just read, which is, I think, the, you know, obviously there are many differences between Bernie and Trump from a policy standpoint, but kind of the animating features of their campaign and what is appealing to them um, is very much a deja vu. Uh, I think there is very much a deja vu in, in the state of the Democratic Party and um, how kind of the inmates are taking over the asylum and the establishment. Um, but but also as I've read these stories over the past week and you know the Daily Beast and other places about establishment Democrats you know working to try to stop. Uh, Bernie Sanders from winning the nomination. You know, I I, I lived that um, four years ago. I lived making those phone calls to you know Republican establishment figures, asking them to speak out. Republican donors asking them to speak out, and having all of them kind of whisper to me in the phone, "Well, I'm I'm with you, Tim. I'm with you, but, but I don't know. We, we'll just have to kind of see how it plays out. Maybe I'll maybe I'll step out later, maybe sooner. And um, you know, by the time folks really wanted to act against Trump, it was too late. Um, you know, he already had too much uh, too much of a head of steam. And, and uh, I, I'm not, as we'll get to in the article, I'm not 100% sure that's how this plays out. But but boy, uh, it's, it's starting to ring true. And Tim, uh, I would say we're not 100% sure of anything in this in this wild year or this wild yeah, era sure. that we live in. But you talk about another ghost, too. You talk about the, the ghost of, of Mitt Romney also haunting Republicans yeah. and that the, the path that Joe Biden on and, and you, the way you lay it out is quite striking. The idea of a um, kind of establishment favorite from uh, a previous cycle or a previous era, even uh, going, giving it one more shot, uh, and the, the, the strong poll position that uh, Romney found himself in um, is very similar to what Biden finds himself in. Um, but there's so many of those opponents out there, and one through line, I, I, one takeaway I had from from your take on this that I think is critical is that a, a lot of what is perceived now as fate around the Romney nomination or the Trump nomination actually had to do with the choices that the opponents made at that time. And that's mm-hmm. where this is an interesting time, because for all of the, uh, the, 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 the fights that have broken out at debates and all of the sniping among campaign ads, there hasn't been a single negative campaign ad run Democrat on Democrat in this cycle. Everyone seems to think that uh, they have some kind of path that doesn't involve that. And the gloves, to a remarkable extent, 
have stayed on, Tim. It's the cho- it's those kind of choices that people make that could lead to a nomination. Yeah, and the choices of who kind of stays in and who doesn't, you know, and, and who those opponents are. I mean, when I laid out for 2012, people kind of have this memory of 2012 that it was a glide path for Romney, but... You know, those of us who, who were involved, and I was at the RNC at the time, uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we didn't put our thumb on the scale, but privately I was, you know, rooting for Romney, preferred him to the final other candidates, which were Ron Paul, Santorum, and Gingrich. And, and you know, there were some nail-biting times for those of us that wanted Romney to win that. Uh, you know, Santorum won some states in the Midwest. Newt's polling, you know, skyrocketed much later in the process than we are right now in the Democratic uh, campaign. And, and um, you know, Romney ended up easing it out. He had, if you if you add up all the votes from all the primaries, about 50 percent, whereas Newt uh, Santorum and Ron Paul had 45 percent. So, you know, kind of what I posit in this article is, you know, imagine the kind of characters had reversed, right? Imagine that Chris Christie had gotten in, um, which he was uh, flirting with, and, and maybe the last three candidates, instead of being Gingrich and Santorum and Romney, were Christie, Romney, and, and Gingrich. Or the guy I worked for at the beginning of that primary, John Huntsman, let's say we had gotten a bigger boost in New Hampshire and stayed in longer, taking from Romney. I, you know, these sort of circumstances matter, and I think people forget that, you know, kind of the Donald Trump moment with the populist takeover of the party that happened in 2016 was very close to happening in 2012, and maybe had Trump gotten in, um, I, I think he very well could have beaten Romney in 2012. And so, you know, when you look at this primary, uh, the question is, can Biden go uh, uh, follow that Romney path with the help of maybe Elizabeth Warren staying around a little bit longer than she should, or, you know, let's say she gets momentum and Bernie staying around a little longer than he should, um, or it, does Biden kind of fall victim to, you know, what the sort of established Republicans saw in 2016, which was a lot of infighting and jockeying while while the populist insurgent um, Trump and in this case Bernie, uh, you know, run away with the nomination. And so I think that's where the decisions that Amy Klobuchar makes, that Mike Bloomberg make, um, uh, actually are going to be very maybe more important than, than people realize. And and I think again to to keep your analogy going here, uh, which it has its limitations, all the caveats around that. Sure. But the fact that we are now sitting here in the impeachment trial of of Donald Trump, as opposed to finishing the second term of Mitt Romney, that may offer a lesson to Democrats as well. And I think you get at this point that this that this insurgency, this populist movement in the Democratic Party, it, it, demographically, it's only a matter of time before it takes over. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it may be that. Uh, we're talking about a um, a party that has changed forever. Maybe Biden is the last of his type of Democrat, and maybe he wins the presidency. But the Democrats uh, are moving in this direction, and the support that Bernie Sanders has among young people might be something that Democrats have to embrace or perish as a party. Uh, I mean, certainly. I, I, I think what I wrote in the piece is that this, the question is whether the kind of Bernie wing of the party takes over by, by May or, or whether it happens in a later cycle, but it's happening. It's happened, and, and this is kind of what we lived through, right? Uh, you know, another thing I, I worked on as at the RNC was the ill-fated autopsy, right? And 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 we as establishment figures were trying to figure out how do we, you know, kind of tame this bear, you know, and and how and and how do we throw them enough. Uh, you know, red meat while kind of maintaining the, you know, principles and responsibilities um, that, that, that we feel like, you know, we should as, as you know, uh, public servants, leaders of the party, whatever, whatever role you were in at that time, whether you're John Boehner or, or me over at the RNC. And, and 
and and it you know we did it didn't happen right we didn't um, uh, uh, the the populace the base were a insatiable and and b you know frankly I think you know felt um, like they were being uh, looked down upon like they weren't being represented. Uh, sound familiar? Uh, you know, so this is the same thing that the Democrats are going to have to go through. And so, you know, the question for the establishment Democrats is, can you co-opt it in a more effective way than, than we did as the Republican establishment? Um, can you partner with them in a more effective way than we did? Or, uh, you know, are we just kind of on this inexorable track to where the populists uh, take over both parties and, and kind of we see whether the chips where the chips fall for, for people um, in the center on both sides? So, so Tim, one last question before you go. Uh, back yeah. uh, in in 2016, when you were uh, trying to mobilize uh, mainstream Republicans to to stop Donald Trump, uh, the, the case that you were making was that Donald Trump would be toast in the in the general election. Yeah. there was no way that he could beat Hillary Clinton. You were obviously yeah, I was wrong about that. Wrong about that, and a lot of people <laughs> were wrong about that. Um, that's what is being said about Bernie Sanders obviously now um yeah. are the people saying that about Bernie Sanders wrong do you think do you think Sanders if he wins this primary is uh it would be poised to beat Donald Trump yeah look i think we can all use some more humility in our projections uh myself number 1 2 and 3 you know i can take all the metal stands on that list um and so i've tried to be more humble in my projections but i, I don't think you know that means that that you can't learn anything or that you can't, you know, make decisions based on probability. Right. And, and I think that, you know, what Donald Trump did um, uh, was kind of mobilize uh, these big swaths of, um, you know, the sort of disaffected Perot uh, voters who, who had kind of drifted back to the Democratic Party, but were unhappy. And this was a vulnerable swath of the electorate. Um, and uh, what we assumed was that that was going to be kind of over, um, uh, you know, corrected by how, how many people he loses in the suburbs. Um, and it turned out he didn't actually lose that many people like me, uh, Republicans in the suburbs. He, he lost a lot of them then in 2018. And so the question is, it, does Bernie benefit from that same, um, um, uh, you know, uh, polarization? I'm not sure that, that he does. You know, the, the suburban vote is actually more important to the Democratic Party right now than it was to the Republican Party in 2016. Um, can Bernie win some of those Trump, um, Obama-Trump voters back? Surely he can. Does Bernie have a path to the presidency? Absolutely. I mean, I, all he has to do is take back those three Midwestern states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Here's the problem, though, if you're a Democrat, from, from my perspective. Can he win? Yes. But if you look at Joe Biden, man, you have a lot of outs. You know, there are a lot of places he can win. He can bring back those three states. You know, he can maybe win Florida. He can maybe win North Carolina. Uh, Bernie is vulnerable on the other side. You know, Virginia, where, where you, you guys live, uh, or where John lives, um, is, was a red state not that long ago. A lot of the people that left the party are Repu- or who voted for Democrats and who voted for Abby Strandberger, who voted for Hillary Clinton, are Republicans like me who left because of the change of the party. Might Bernie Sanders move some of those people back into the Republican camp? That's not crazy. So Bernie might win that Midwest inside straight but then drop another state because of, um, you know, just how unusual of a candidacy he is. So anyway, short answer, yes, he can win. But but was John Chait right in his article yesterday? Is it a risk because of uh, uh, all of the other areas where he might drop off in the suburbs? Absolutely. It's a much bigger risk than some of the other candidates. All right, Tim Miller, it's good to catch up with you, man. 
Man, it's so good to hear from you guys. I really appreciate the call. I was happy I was able to scare John, and, and thank you guys <laughs> for reading the bulwark. Um, we're having a lot of fun over there. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Tim Miller, take care. Thank you, sir. See you guys. All right, Rick. Well, we're, we're going we're gonna, to, I think, know a heck of a lot about the direction of this race uh, after Monday. Yeah, and and Monday is a critical day for this piece of the argument inside the Democratic Party. Uh, the the idea of uh, is this Bernie thing for real, and does he actually win the Iowa caucuses as he came so close last time? That is a much different scenario than a Biden victory. We could also have a couple of candidates who are uh, essentially uh, all but out if they don't do, end up placing very well. You know, look, people have made a lot of how crowded this field is. And once you start voting, it's just very hard. Uh, as, a, as a matter of fact and as a matter of uh, press attention to continue if you're not winning. And there's something about that voting that makes things different. And things are going to look a lot different uh, on that very next day uh, after Iowa when these caucuses finally sort themselves out. And the thing we haven't talked about, and we're out of time, so this will be, this will be our post-game analysis, but if Biden wins, I mean, yeah. he, he's, uh, he gets a, just, a, just a rocket boost out of, out of Iowa. Uh, if, uh, if Bernie wins... I mean, we're we're, we're going to be in an all-out battle. Uh, it's kind of it's almost like a Groundhog Day situation, right? If uh, a, a Biden victory, the Groundhog doesn't see the shadow, and you know, spring is coming for for Joe Biden. If Bernie wins, uh, we've got a we've got a, a, a couple three solid months of uh, of, of major campaigning. Am I Game right? On. See you in Iowa, John. All right, take care, Rick. That's it for Powerhouse Politics. Thank you for our, to our entire Powerhouse Politics team. We'll see you next week post-Iowa caucuses.